0: This week, we discuss the ancient lost art of hash making, Napoleon's contribution to cannabis culture, and how plants can communicate with each other as well as with humans. Coming up next on Critical Grass.
1: Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating. Mind expanding. Safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing the hula hoop of the jet generation and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence critical grass he's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot he's not convinced that grass is all that harmful but there is room for a lot of doubt why don't we wait and see there's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts critical grass My name is Franchi uh, Canoli. I'm obviously French. <laughs> I'm a hashishin. I'm a ash maker. I make traditional ash, and I uh, I've been doing that for a long time.
0: Ooh la la! Indeed. That little intro was brought to you by Noise Theory, with a super dope jam titled Hash Power. And if you haven't figured out by now, the track title has everything to do with what we'll be talking about in the next half hour or so. And what I guess we have this week, the man, the myth, the legend, Frenchie Canoli, Hashmaster Extraordinaire, or if you want to use his proper title from LinkedIn, Master Hashishin. Unofficially, he's the defender and instructor of the lost art of hash making, Frenchie can be seen in all sorts of publications, weed-centered as well as non-weed-centered ones alike. When not writing about Hash himself, Frenchie gives lectures, hosts workshops, does podcasts, and engages with other Hash connoisseurs and followers to talk about the wonderful world of Hash. And boy, what a rabbit hole this is. If there ever was a person to do for Hashish what Jiro has done for Sushi, then Frenchie is your guy. He's even working on his own docu-series about Hash right now. In addition to all of the above, Frenchie is also a world traveler, teacher, consultant, artisan, activist, a husband, a dad, and a super cool cat who loves to talk shop. I caught up with him via Skype in his home in Oakland, where he resides permanently, bringing his knowledge, love, and passion for hash to American cannabis culture, which could be at the verge of a traditional hash renaissance. I was curious to how his journey with hash began and whether France was where it all started. It
1: uh it did, yeah. And uh it was ash. We have no I didn't see flowers until late, much later. We don't smoke flower in uh in Europe. I do remember clearly it was Lebanese and uh it put me in a place where I had never been so happy since I was a kid and when you're 17 it's like, it's a dark side of the, I mean I was really in the dark side of the moon like facing adulthood and that looked really bad, I would have shot myself if I had to do a 9 to 5 life and I, I, I was lost, I didn't know really what I was, what I wanted and to smoke that Junt of Ash put me back into my childhood time where the only things I wanted to do was to travel. I wanted the Thousand and What Night. I wanted the Red Sea. I wanted Kipling and India. I, this is really like, that's what I really wanted when I was kids. And smoking that was like testing and smelling those country. And it came back with a revenge. And on top of it... To smoke ash in my time was the most evil things you could do, not only to yourself, but to your family and to your clothes. Like, no, <laughs> no pressure, you know, and, uh, and it was too beautiful to be true. You know what I mean? I didn't trust, I didn't trust my parents. I didn't trust society in any case. And I, uh, as soon as I was 18 years old, so I didn't have to wait much because I, my first joint was, I was in my early 17. Uh, as soon as I was 18, I was gone. And I traveled for 18 years solid.
0: I've noticed a little pattern here with people who discover the joys of hash and decide to share it with others. It seems that travel, literature, and fantasy all go really well with hashish. Just ask last week's guests, Nikki Lestredo and Swami Chaitanya, what they got up to while they were in South Central Asia a few years ago, or the French artists who founded the Club of Fascians in the 19th century in Paris. So we see here that Hash is, of course, not uniquely Asian. It has its supporters all over the place these days, but I did wonder how it was able to crack the European landscape as early as it did.
1: It's, it came with... Um with Napoleon uh, army. Napoleon went to Egypt and they stayed three years there. Three years later, they were all smoking (laughs) and they brought back the, the culture. The culture was pretty strong in the Islamic empire. So as soon as Western world and the Islamic empire was connecting, mostly medicine and fun, Well, ash and cannabis was right there, and it came into the the medicinal part of the uh, of the Western medicine. And uh, most, like some of the greatest uh, literature, was made by hardcore stoners, like serious stoners. Uh, Like, but a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of painter. It was. They were not really taking ash edible regularly, but they were stoners, and uh, that was a good, a huge source of inspiration and uh, and part of their dedication to their art. You know, when you're poor and you suffer, well, smoking make it a little easier at every every level. It's like it's a uh, it. It has been very much part of the art culture and and art scene, most certainly, for a very, very long time.
0: You don't hear this very often, but you might want to thank Napoleon for bringing hash to Europe. Hashish, of course, is not the first thing that comes to mind when thinking of Napoleon, particularly if you're not French. But if not for Napoleon's soldiers, who couldn't drink their precious wine while in Egypt, where alcohol was banned... Hash might not have made it to the West, and possibly would have remained an exclusive feature of the Islamic Empire for a good while. But Napoleon's soldiers brought back loads of the stuff, and inevitably, all the French starving artists got their hands on it as well. And for them, it was not only a source of inspiration for their art, it helped numb the pain of their not-so-easy existence in the 19th century. Hashish was further popularized in the West in the 1970s and 80s by the late Howard Marks, who literally smuggled tons of it into the U.S., though smoking flour is still king in the New World. Which leads to the question of why smoking cannabis flour hasn't been that popular in Europe, at least until fairly recently.
1: Because we smoke concentrate, because we like it stronger, because hash is the name of the game. In most countries, except the most tropical. Where they can't make ash because it's too humid. You would have to make charas like in India in this tropical country. And in America, the culture, the culture was a mix of flour and ash coming from producing country after the EP uh, trail and stuff like that. Then the, the fed went really hard on uh, all imports. And uh, they started to grow themselves. So there is a world culture of flower in a, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, but it's only in America, in Canada. We don't have that in Europe. Even the the Western, the most Western uh, countries, they all, we all smoke ash. It's uh, it's an influence of that whole Islamic uh, cultures uh, where it was born. It's interesting, uh, actually, to be able to mix it up.
0: So while hash never really went away in Europe, flour has been gaining in popularity in the last decade or so, mainly thanks to the influence of American culture throughout the West. But the 1970s was also when Richard Nixon's drug war began, and anything related to cannabis was deemed a threat to national security, despite its popularity among hippies, who were a threat to the establishment and its plans to send young people off to war in Vietnam. Cutting off the supply of cannabis and cannabis-derived products was a top priority, so many people were forced to grow their own cannabis, but in the process, concentrate production was nearly forgotten, at least on a broad scale. But with the recent gains by legalization movements throughout the U.S., concentrates are making a very strong comeback, especially in the form of dabs. And there are plenty of dispensaries where you can buy what appears to be hash, apart from things like bubble hash or water hash, as well as other concentrates. However, this is not exactly what Frenchie has in mind as far as the real deal is concerned.
1: It's not ash on top of it. And here they use the word hash for everything that is somewhere related to resin, And it's pretty confusing because for us, hash is traditional hash. For them, any type of extract, what we call concentrate, it's ash for them. And it's very difficult to make them understand that ash is part of our culture. It's a 1,200 years old plus word that is very meaningful for the rest of the planet. So it's uh, if they really want to call extract ash, they have to use the word American before, like they do with football. If you, they say only football, well, for us, football, it's what they call soccer or international football. You know what I mean? It's like, if he, it's, America could become really the, the France and Bordeaux of the cannabis industry. But to create something like this, you need to be able to understand Tradition and to respect them and to create standardization of a vocabulary that the world over would, uh, would agree and, uh, and not an appropriation of words that, uh, uh, why not? Yeah, sure. Why not? Why not call a game that you hardly ever touch the ball with your feet football? Sure. Why not? But. The question, does it make sense? I mean, can't we have something that would be really accepted worldwide? We don't have that vocabulary and we're going to need it very soon.
0: What Frenchie is calling for here is essentially standardization for names and terms. And as far as cannabis is concerned, this is long overdue. And this also applies to concentrates like hash. Unfortunately, it's not an easy process, as you have an 800-pound gorilla in the form of federal prohibition, keeping an entire industry from fully developing. But changes are coming. In 2018, the California Department of Food and Agriculture established a process for defining cannabis appellations, or specific geographic areas, in which farmers will be allowed to identify and market their crop with that name, much like Champagne or Bordeaux. Local groups should be able to submit applications to create appellations by 2021, and in some areas, such as Mendocino County, you already have the Bell Springs appellation, which already produces highly sought-after cannabis flower, and Bell Springs is among the places Frenchy sources his material for his craft. Well, if you look at the menu of many dispensaries in states with legal cannabis markets, you do see hash every now and then. So it seems to be making a bit of a comeback, albeit not as big as hash enthusiasts would like. What exactly is the lost art of hash that Frenchie keeps referring to? It's traditional hash.
1: Mm. It's just I'm trying to show the science behind traditional hash. In America, they absolutely refuse to press resin. They even keep it in the fridge so that when it's so good that it would Melt together. They have, they avoid. Have, uh, they they works against the natural aspect of the resin that is to melt together. And me, I'm trying to make them understand that if every country, every producing country of in the world, they all have been pressing resin since the dawn of time. There is maybe a reason behind. There is no methodologies that can span even uh, uh, ten years. If it's not on point, it's going to disappear. Imagine a, a text that is tens of millennium old. You don't even check it up. Mm-hmm. It's like, you may not like the, the aspect of traditional hashish and, uh, and you rather have your uh, resin head on, un, uh, unpressed, untouched. It's for me, it's like, yeah, you like to eat grape. Me, I like to crush those grapes, to edge them, and to make wine with it. And if possibly, I like to make great wine, I it. It's different. I get it. But not showing the respect to tradition is what's my problem here in America, basically. So the lost art of the hashishin, it's a, it's a non-phazis uh, on that. Yeah, no, it's not a lost art quite yet. Because if it was lost, I wouldn't be able to teach it. (laughs) You know what I mean? But it's trying to to have that little uh, click that brings attention toward what is traditional art and what's the science behind, basically.
0: So Frenchie has some critical words for American cannabis culture. And to a large extent, I tend to agree with him. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to be innovative with products, and undoubtedly, American cannabis culture has come up with some wonderful developments, such as rosin pressing or making live resin. But there's also much to be learned from traditional methods as well. So what are they, first of all? There
1: is three methodologies. There is a rub, the first concentrate ever made, was that dude that touched the flower to get the seeds and add sticky resin on his finger. That's the first ever concentrate made. The first concentrate was live resin, OK? Mm-hmm. Then you have from this sticky on the finger, they managed to stick it in their wall. And that's the oldest tech to collect resin and rub and it's live resin. When you make ash, you dry and cure the flower before you separate the trichon gland from the plant material, which is not the same product at all. It's like charas and ashish are two very different products that you, it's I mean, they're both coming from the resin, but you can make different pro- very different products from milk, for example. You know what I mean? There is butter and there is cheese. So it's like it's not because it's the same main source that it's not really vastly different. And from this, water, it's an evolution into dry sieving. But because I have water... I can do more than dry sieving. I can use, I can, I can work with live resin also and separate them inside that water. So it's like it give me the water, give me the ability to work with uh, rehydrated material which help me not make contaminant because when they're dry, it's brittle. Every time you touch it, make contaminant. That water helped me that. And Mila, she's uh, she's the one who brought the only true innovation in the game of sieving cannabis resin. When you sieve, you have the process of dry sieving is made of, the methodology of dry sieving is made of two processes. You agitate your material over your tool, so that the resin, the gland, the trichon gland, break from the stock. When they break from the stock with the agitation, they fall on your screen. And there is a separation through the perforation of the tool. So you have agitation and separation happening at the same time. Mila, when she put the bag into play, now you have the agitation in a washer, in an agitation tool, or by hand, whatever the take, and you have the separation in your sieve, in your bags. This is genius. Very people understand it because people call that an extraction. But if you look at it and you understand that it's actually a sieving process and the water is your medium that helps you change totally everything. Uh, you can, you can literally leave 2% of cannabinoid in your plant material after agitation. That's okay. what I do with my machine. And, uh, ethanol and this type of a- extraction, they're somewhere around 1%. So it's like using water when it's done really well, uh, you leave nothing on that plant material, you can literally compost it without stressing yourself.
0: So the original method Frenchie is referring to here is the hand rub method, which is about as low tech as you can get. All you need is a bunch of fresh but ripe cannabis flowers and a pair of spotlessly clean hands. You will also need a lot of time as it's very labor intensive and produces fairly low yields, so don't expect to become a hand rub mogul anytime soon. At any rate, this method is what gives us what is known as charas, which is still popular in places like India and Nepal. A more common method is the dry sift method, where dried and cured flowers are rubbed over a very fine screen. Frenchie also references Mila, a.k.a. Mila Jansen, one of our guests from last year, episode 22 if you're keeping track. She revolutionized hash making by mechanizing the process, rendering it much easier to produce and substantially increase yields. Apart from that, you have water hash, which uses water as the medium for catching and transporting the trichomes for later collection and concentration. Of these three methods, you might say that charas is the purest form, as it comes as close to the natural state of the cannabis plant as possible. What I wanted to know was whether the effects of these three main methods are all that noticeable. Uh, Charas in India
1: and uh, Ashis from from Afghanistan is radically different. Uh, Charas is literally speedy. It's risky. It's, it's something that keep you uh, keep you moving. Ashes. It's more like even if it's not like uh, put you to sleep, it's something that slow you down a bit. You know what I mean? It's sh- when you use water. What makes a huge difference is the amount of terpen. Actually, that you if you collect much more terpen with a live resin. Than the dry and cure because you lose 80% of terpen when you dry and cure. They do transform mm. and become something else, a, a new terpen profile that is sometimes greater than the live, but there is less of it. So all those terpen together change totally the effect uh, when the. The cannabinoid locked into your receptors, uh, the terpen modulate the whole experience. So it's, the, it's going to be very, very different. Even if it's the same strain, it's going to be a very different uh, experience. You lose. If it smell, you lose. Okay. It's simple. The only way, the, the only way to lose the minimum of the minimum you harvest at night. You fresh, it's fresh frozen and it's a BH2 extraction. That's, uh, or ethanol extraction. That's the only way to get it all. And still, it's not 100%. Otherwise, if it smell, you're losing. Mm-hmm. Simple. You're always losing. Starting by harvesting at night, then you, you, uh, you're still losing, but you don't lose everything that he's doing during the day, where it's, uh, it's made strong in the field when you, are uh, during the day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not really what you lose. It's what you don't lose that really count for ash. When, once you, you have all those separate, those, those loose trichon trich- gland, all those glands, all the cannabinoids are with the carboxyl acid, with a A. Okay? If I smoke that, I'm going to lose a little bit of that carboxyl acid, maybe 20%. That's what makes it psychoactive. But when I press ash with the source of heat and I pretty calm another 30, 40%, it packs three times the power then it would pack if you don't. That's the beauty of it. Those people that invented the game, they don't know about Descartes. They couldn't even see the dressing gland, but they knew how to activate the cannabinoid. And it's crazy. I mean, it's like traditional... I've seen stuff tra- living in traditional, in, uh, with tradition that blew my mind away. Now that I have the science behind what they're doing, it's like, wow, how did you figure that out in the first place? I mean, it's crazy.
0: So by using the water-based method, you're holding on to most of the precious terpenes, which not only smell fantastic, they work in conjunction with the other cannabinoids to produce a synergistic effect making the hash a much more effective medicine. And by pressing the resin, you go into what Frenchie calls pre-decarboxylation, which just means you are decarbing your hash before actually smoking it. This aspect of hash making is all the more impressive, considering the very original hashishians didn't even know what decarboxylation was. What's even more fascinating is how they figured it out.
1: I think our ancestor, I mean, imagine these people who were two million years ago. You're bare-handed, naked in a megafauna, mega. It's like the only tool you have. It's nature giving you. You better be good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And to survive, Homo erectus, they survive 1.5 million years from Spain to Indonesia. Those people, they had a connection with nature. I mean, they were talking to plants were spirit for them. They could mm-hmm. they were talking to plants. I mean, they could learn stuff. It maybe sounds crazy, but some science shows that plants are very aware and they know a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they better figure it out because that's all they had as a mean to survive. They had yep. nothing but their resources, their awareness and understanding of what nature could give them as the tool to survive. And as science told us that the cannabis plant was in Europe four million years before humanity. Okay? Mm-hmm. Six million years ago, the cannabis plant was from Everywhere, from the Tibetan plateau to Europe, we were not yet there. The plant was here, so uh, it's been part of our, uh, of not even our culture, of human evolution. Literally, I mean, it's like you have the first organism, the the, the first life organism in the sea, having already that uh endocannabinoid system that we have in our body, then almost a billion years later, you have the plant that separate from humulus, the only one that can produce the very compound to connect to a system that will be born 20 million years later. Hello. It's like, well, we are a little connected to that plant. I think so, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, based on that, you could argue that nature gifted the cannabis plant to humans as a survival tool. Now, you might be poo-pooing the idea that nature might actually give a shit about humans or its many other cohabitants. Some of you might even think nature is completely indifferent to Homo sapiens. But the fact of the matter is, we have an endocannabinoid system specifically designed for consuming the cannabis plant. So there's plenty of evidence that plant wisdom is an actual thing. But don't take my word for it. There's also a wonderful book written by German author Peter Wohlleben titled The Hidden Life of Trees, which claims that trees are social beings that communicate with each other. And I personally don't think trees are the only plants to do so. Looking to the present now, I wanted to ask Frenchie whether he thinks the quick rise in the popularity of dabs and other concentrates will become a threat to the lost art of hash making.
1: No, it's like I compare the concentrate world to the alcoholic beverage industry, OK? You have somebody like me that takes the fruit, crush it, and create a product that comes from a chemical reaction happening from the matrix that created the what's inside. The, in that case, the resin. Like, uh, to make wine, you need to crush the whole grape. To be able to have the fermentation process, and I let it age. I make wine, but if you take the if you take the resin from the gland, and you leave behind the matrix that created the resin, it's like taking the juice from the uh, from the grape. You leave behind the matrix that created the sugar and uh, and the juice. But this, you can refine it into many, many, many incredible alcohol until you reach 90.9% pure ethanol. Okay. And all those alcohol are crazy, amazingly different and beautiful. And you would never compare them. Okay. It's just that twisted. Cannabis industry. Everybody has always be, need to have their product or themselves better than the next. You don't compare whiskey and uh, and tequila. You don't compare wine to uh, any other alcohol, or if not even to brandy. Why? What would be the point? You know what I mean? Why not appreciate the diversity that is offered by the, that amazing power? of separating and recreating like they like they do i mean i i I come from the perfume industry so i have a lot of respect for extraction in the first place and uh i don't smoke it uh, but not because i don't respect it it's just because i uh i rather smoke ash even than rosin it's like if if you smoke the ash it's like a warm blanket Winter time, a fireplace, super cozy for a long time, like that well-being, comfy feeling. When you, when you smoke the resin that is squished from that ash is a bang, super speedy, super short. Not that I don't like that at four o'clock in the afternoon. Instead of drinking coffee, I do have a few dabs. But that's not what I smoke. I can appreciate a source i can i, I mean i I know some of the best extractors in the world uh, and I do truly appreciate their uh, their product, but that's not my buzz. You know what I mean that's not what I smoke that's all. but I would never say anything I, I wouldn't try to compare because it's not comparable i'm I'm blown away by the diversity and the beauty of it you know, on the other hand.
0: So it doesn't look like the rapidly expanding concentrate market will eliminate more traditional techniques. If anything, it might even encourage people to explore long-forgotten methods and recipes. So from the looks of it, even concentrates like hashish are becoming more accepted in the mainstream. Does this mean we might soon witness bigger change as far as legalization is concerned?
1: Yes, because everybody, there is many countries that are all medical or recreational that you choose now. And the United Nations do not seem to really worry that much about it because they give their benediction. So, I mean, it doesn't mean anything because like like for me here in California. Okay, we are legal, but on my box, on everyone on my box in capital letter, it is written down that I am selling a schedule one drug on the legal market it's written down that i'm but the californian states will give me the right to do something illegal as long as i give them a cut on what i do that's not legalization by any means you know what i mean the plant is on schedule one when it's not on schedule one anymore anybody can do whatever they want and it's coming down because that plant is most certainly medicinal, and it's not that active. Shit, Sugar is more addictive than cannabis. Come on, guys, you know yeah. what I mean. We are so beyond uh, what made the plant uh, into that prohibition stage that sooner than later it's going to be unscheduled, and uh, and then we can actually. Do something with the plant Mm -hmm. power because we need it. You cannot stop. It's not a little snowball anymore. This is a big avalanche, (laughs) and it's coming everywhere. There is no way you can stop that anymore because we we jumped from medicinal to adult use, and there is a lot of there is even Canada, full country playing that game. So it's like, it's not like, uh, maybe it's happening and it's better for those country. It's like Amsterdam in, uh, in Europe. They never went back because it was better for them. Portugal, they decriminalized and it doesn't matter what the rest of the world was telling them. They had the number to show it was much better for everybody. So it's like... Uh, number, you cannot, you just cannot avoid them for too long. And when you have such a percentage of the population that are actually stoners, that's more than money, that's power, that's vote. Uh, you just need people with the balls to say, okay, vote for me, guys. I legalize tomorrow <laughs> and I grow with you. You know what I mean? It's like the guy who has the boss to do that. Uh, you don't shoot yourself politically anymore. I mean, yeah. they're doing it in the States. Huh? They're running on that platform. Huh?
0: So Frenchie has a pretty optimistic view of the future of cannabis. And in the long term, I'm in complete agreement that once you let the genie out of the bottle, there's no going back. Even in places where prohibition was brutally restrictive, you have laws changing and attitudes evolving. A mere eight years ago, there were zero states in the US with legal recreational cannabis. Today, we're at about a dozen, and that number keeps growing. Which doesn't mean we get to sit back and spark up right away. There's still a ton of work left to do, whether it's getting a regulated market in place or getting people out of prison for cannabis-related offenses, among a slew of other things but it's looking bright overall. Now, before we wrap up, I wanted to share Frenchie's answer to what advice he wishes he would have heard at the start of his journey down Cannabis Lane.
1: Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, when I was doing this, it was so illegal. It's, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I could do it because I was a nomad and I lived in producing country. Otherwise, I would have spent a lot of time in jail if I had stayed here at home. I mean, it's like, now that the game is changing, yeah, you can say something. You know what I mean? But at my time, I didn't even believe that it could be legal. You know what I mean? At all. Even in my wildest dream. So to be able to teach making art and making workshop and stuff, it's like not even the, the most science fiction, Dream I ever had, not even remotely close. now, this generation knowledge is power. The more you know, the more people will need you. If you have the knowledge and the dedication with the plant, yeah, it's much more than money because money they're gonna need you to make stuff happen. So it's like the more. Knowledge, botanical knowledge. You have the more knowledge on uh, the science of the soil. Of the soil. Uh, if we don't do regenerative farming, the planet is dead. So it's like this generation have to know everything they can about regenerative farming. I make a dude. He can use regenerative farming. No fertilizer, nothing and take care of golf courses. And football field in America, I swear to God, the guy just fucking water the field. And they don't believe him. And I mean, it's like if somebody can do regenerative uh, farming on a golf course and a football field that is played every week and stuff, uh, we could do much better on a, on the planet. Learn that. Learn anything that gives you the power and the ability to maximize the power of the plant. Or in breeding, like botany, like you need to know that, that stuff to be able to go beyond all generation. We've just started to scratch the, the surface at the moment. You want to be right there with the scientists because that's the future.
0: If we want to contact Frenchy and learn more from the master Hashishin himself, where do we go?
1: Frenchy at com by email uh, on my IG. I, uh, DM on the IG always answer the website also. Yeah. And on the website, you really have the, not only everything I have written up to now for the different magazine and stuff, but all the reference I have used to write those articles and uh, a bunch of reference on, uh, on books that, uh, were really important in my life, basically.
0: And now the hardest part, time to say au revoir. Frenchie Cannoli, merci beaucoup for the chat today. Uh, It was a fun one. I learned a lot of cool things uh, about hash today uh, that uh, I I didn't know were possible. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, good luck with all your uh, various hash projects. And uh, I hope to see you at a a cannabis uh, event uh, somewhere soon, whether it's uh, California or Europe or uh, anywhere else. I I think the first cannabis event
1: that will happen. Everybody, doesn't matter where they are, are going to come to really enjoy it together. We need a big party. Yes. (laughs) Was nice talking to you, man.
0: That's a wrap for episode 35 of the Critical Grass Podcast. A million merci beaucoup to the amazing Frenchie Canoli for the exciting conversation on Hash. I hope you guys are as inspired as I am. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share with others on your social media or any anti social media you might be using. You can tweet back to us or harass us on Instagram. We have an army of troll hunters on standby. I realize times are tough now for many of us, but if you do feel like supporting the podcast financially, Head on over to critical grass.com, where you can find a link to PayPal or Patreon, and you can work your donative magic. If you can, of course. We'll be back soon with another canatastic guest, so stay tuned. It's not like you have anywhere to go anyway. As always, je m'appelle Bogdan. Stay hashy, everyone.